Brand Safety Exchange is a podcast focused on the principles and practices of user and brand safety and is produced by Oasis Consortium, an industry think tank advancing ethical standards across three core pillars, safe online communities, data privacy, and diversity and inclusion. My name is Erica DeLorenzo. I'm the Managing Director of Oasis Consortium, and I'm delighted to be your host for this season of the Brand Safety Exchange. I'll be speaking with executives from across the media ecosystem, from technology solution providers that help teams scale and improve their trust and safety operations, to industry leaders working on collaborative efforts that support platforms, publishers, and brands of all sizes to accomplish safety, inclusion, and privacy by design. Our guests have a lot to say about their personal journeys into trust and safety, how they navigate a rapidly changing technological, behavioral, and regulatory environment, and the advice they have for their peers and colleagues. We hope you enjoy this episode. And for more information on how you can help build ethical and positive online experiences for both people and brands, download the Oasis User Safety Standards on our website at www.oasisconsortium.com. Today, I am very excited to welcome someone who I have been turning to for his thoughtful insights in gaming and esports, for how to think about the metaverse and Web3 technologies and the opportunity for brands in immersive environments. Jonathan Stringfield is VP of Global Business Research and Marketing at Activision Blizzard Media. He earned his PhD from the University of Illinois. He is also the author of Get in the Game, How to Level Up Your Business with Gaming, Esports, and Emerging Technologies. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for having me, Erica. Really excited. Yeah, excited to have another chat with you. Um, So let's start with a little bit, if we can, about your background and how you came to gaming, because it's rather interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been working in, um, you know, basically applied research almost the entirety of my career, largely bent towards media. So started early on um, at Nielsen, literally making the denominators for um, television ratings, Um, went to Facebook, was there very early on to Twitter, and then finally to Activision Blizzard. So the, the underlying theme and, you know, across all that, doing my background academic work and what have you, largely focusing on how individuals think about, use, and project things like their identity through technologically intermediated lenses. So obviously, that made a lot of sense for while I was at the social networking platforms in terms of understanding how users thought about and portrayed like identity and thought about their audience and things like that. And that was the focus of my dissertation, which then kind of cleanly went to to gaming and to certain degrees. One, because you know, I'll put cards on the table. I've been a lifelong gaming fan. I've been, you know, very interested in the industry, you know, reasonably forever. But then also was very much aware that it was a very important, if not one of the more important entertainment mediums that existed. So you take that, you layer on now the dialogue around metaverse and things that which, again, which we'll sure get to that so much of what we think about the metaverse is is basically an antecedent of gaming. It all kind of mixes together. So long and short, it's it's a little bit of a non-standard trajectory, but one where kind of that unifying theme is thinking a lot about how we think about and portray ourselves through technologies, which again, I think are as relevant to social media as now things like gaming platforms. 
Yeah, very, very interesting. And we are going to sort of start to weave in the metaverse and Web3 technologies very quickly here. Um, so what is your current role and areas of focus at Activision Blizzard Media, just to give folks some context? Yeah, so I work with a team that uh, ranges from data scientists to designers that works with brands and agencies and what have you and talks with them about the opportunities within gaming. So realistically, we work across all the B2B outreach for um, Activision Blizzard. So taking a step back for folks that are familiar, Activision Blizzard is one of the bigger um, game publishers in the world, makes World of Warcraft, Call of Duty, Candy Crush, and what have you. And again, as gaming becomes a bigger and bigger entertainment medium, there's just more surface area for marketers to integrate. So what we do is both build and work with marketers and brands and what have you to help them explore the ways that they can be brought in in a way that makes sense for the players and also has empirical backing to it. Because again, my background is in research. We do a lot of work to make sure that one, that the experiences are going to be okay for the players, but then also, on a more tactical basis, we're doing a good job of measuring ROI for the advertisers, understanding that though gaming has been around for a long time, um, realistically, this is a newer platform for them to get into. So it's an interesting space insofar that, you know, again, it's taking what could be described as a longstanding legacy platform, but kind of reintroducing it to marketers, but making sure we do it in a way that's measured and in tune with their needs. Yes, with a short background in video games, I can relate to that and appreciate so much what you guys are bringing to the table, um, especially in terms of measurement. Very, very important. So let's um, let's dive in to some meaty stuff. And can I ask you to share with the audience what your framework is for how to think about the metaverse, in quotes, and Web3 technologies? Um, specifically how gaming as an immersive and entertainment experience is an important and helpful context. I've heard you lay this out before, um, and I think it's it's really instructive and an important um, ground to lay before we get into the rest of it. All right, well, I'll, I'll try to live up to that. So I think right from the onset, we want to make a distinction between Metaverse and Web3. Um, I think by nature of the fact that these are two types of technologies or two, I don't know, I guess you could say theories of technology that are broadly related to the future of the internet, they've kind of been mashed together. And sometimes it's for reasons of wanting to drive adoption, others just from generalized confusion. But realistically, they're kind of talking about two separate things. The metaverse, if we were to go with the kind of like broadly accepted in air quotes definition is perpetual, existing, interconnected, embodied, often 3D worlds that are more or less going to replace our commercial internet. So this will be the interface in theory that we access a lot of what we today understand to be the commercial internet. On the other hand, Web3 realistically is talking about a infrastructure that gets away from centralized intermediaries in general, but more specifically, at least in the application of Web3, from legacy kind of corporations, which have concentrated a lot of the traffic, the, the pull that really became the, the kind of like closed wall ecosystems of what we, again, currently describe as the, as the commercial internet. So on that side, it's a different type of slant towards the technology, which I think is more related to kind of the infrastructure, whereas the metaverse could potentially be, you know, the interface that we use through it. So the distinction that I make with folks is that First of all, you know, we don't want to make the assumption that either of these will happen, right? That is not a foregone conclusion. I think that is a trap right out the gate to just kind of assume, well, these are inevitable. Nothing's inevitable, right? And one may succeed and the other might not, or they both might move forward, right? And I, and I think just kind of acknowledging that and starting to disentangle it is very helpful because 
candidly, when you look at either which one, and I suspect we'll talk about both, they each have a lot of confusion, a lot of expectations attached to them, and candidly, a lot occasionally controversy within them as well. So the more that you kind of conflate things, I don't think it's really helping the overall intellectual exercise of trying to think through what this could be. It's only kind of muddying the waters. And I think if you allow yourself to disentangle them a little bit, you can accept and acknowledge what are the problems, the barriers, and what have you of something like a metaverse on its own. And then similarly, you can acknowledge the barriers, the the issues, the potential blockers we have on something like a Web3 type infrastructure on its own as well. And can you say more about gaming in that context and what what we can learn from those kinds of immersive uh, environments? Yeah, I mean, for the metaverse, it's fairly straightforward that much of how it's been described, even I think a lot of, you know, the fictional depictions or what have you, they borrow heavily from gaming because realistically, when we look at the history of video games, the idea of having cohabited virtual worlds has existed for some 40, 50 years, depending on where you put the accounting. Now, again, to be clear, that hasn't always been with like VR and, you know, all these photorealistic spaces that we expect it to be. But again, the general idea that people have socialized and made friends and gotten married and all sorts of different things within these digital worlds has a long history there. So long and short, whether you're looking at it as kind of the more tactical examples where you can start to plug into metaverse-like experiences, whether it's like a Fortnite or Roblox or what have you, all those are essentially gaming, to wanting to understand more about just the generalized psychology of things like immersive media All of this is going to kind of lead to gaming. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying, and I don't think few believe that the metaverse will always be a game or game-like environment, right? However, everything that we know to be or point to or think about for the most part as a metaverse does fall within the world of gaming in either which way, again, will be the best place that we can learn about it for now. So much of, I think, as we understand and start to build the metaverse, we're going to keep going back to these references, not the least of which are the tools that we use to build virtual worlds in gaming. So again, game engines that are used for the creation of game experiences are going to become more important and conceivably start to be used for non-game type experiences. So the connection between metaverse is pretty clear. Web3, I think, is, is, is similarly connected insofar that you know, realistically, much of that really comes down to the desire to have blockchain technology adopted more generally, much of that tying back to cryptocurrencies and belief in that system as a means for creating value, but has a high degree of intersection with gaming insofar that one of the ways that individuals believe that Web3 will really be brought to mass adoption is through the lens of gaming, because one, it's easy to apply and value the concept of digital ownership, which is something that Web3 proponents are very big on, to gaming because, again, same deal. For sometimes decades at a time, people have had ownership of digital items within various game environments, put a lot of value to them, and occasionally have sold them in the past for real-world currency, albeit through things like gray markets or occasionally through integrations within the game. So all of this felt like a very natural transition for that particular group. But I think what we found is that there continues to be a lot of back and forth between Web3 and gaming communities and the potential for play to earn or play to own and all these other various acronyms that are coming up and how effective they'll be to reaching what is a quote unquote mainstream or traditional gamer versus folks that are just kind of interested in being integrated into Web3 technology for the sake of it being Web3 technology. And I think really interesting, of course, we're going to get into this now, but how that plays into um, player behavior, the environment itself, what it's like to move about these places and spaces and interact with other people. So so let's get into that. 
Um, you wrote an article for VentureBeat last summer in which you said, I'm going to quote, give a couple quotes here. Lapses in humanistic thinking are some of the greatest follies in technology more generally and a phenomenon that may be getting worse. Web3 is particularly prone to ignoring human-oriented thinking because much of the technology is designed to remove as much of the human element as possible. It's the basic premise of beliefs like code is law. The current Web3 landscape is defined by overconfidence in technology and underthinking about the human element involved with the technology. You also said, a bias towards greed and financialization is shaping the future of Web3 in a way that not only doesn't attend to basic human needs, but is becoming an impediment to societal trust around the technology more generally. Problems being solved are entirely focused on extrinsic, extrinsic needs, such as financial rewards, and not at all on intrinsic needs like human connection, satisfaction, the pleasures of fun, or otherwise. Gaming solves these needs for humans, and the most successful platforms in Web2 did the same. The fact that we are seeing a convergence should not be entirely surprising from this point of view. Can you share some examples of what you're seeing and where you think we as an industry can course correct on this? For sure. So, I mean, taking a step back to like kind of frame it up that if we think about, and again, very, very broadly, and I'm sure people that are really deeply into this will kind of say that, you know, well, you're glossing over a few things. Cryptocurrencies came from essentially financial collapses in the housing market and what have you that basically was stemmed from or created a distrust in centralized financial institutions, right? Like that's more or less the genesis of why we have things like Bitcoin and, and, and all the derivatives of it. Web3 is very similar, but less so of a distrust of the financial institutions, though, again, I'd say the coupling between cryptocurrencies and Web3 is extremely tight for fairly obvious reasons. They both rely on Bitcoin and both are relying on speculative assets to drive value, but less so in terms of trust of centralized agencies for like the Googles, the Facebooks, the what have you, basically the digital stewards of the world, right? So on the one hand, you're looking at a system which is by design being made such that you don't need intermediaries, right? Like that's the basis of a trustless system. The issue is it can go pretty far in that direction that when you start to implement, you know, smart contracts and other things, which essentially act as the intermediaries, and the belief that, well, code is impartial, and of course, it's always just going to make the right decision, then we won't have all these nasty human biases influencing it and corrupting the system and what have you. We're kind of glossing over the fact that someone wrote that code. Um, and on the one hand, maybe they didn't have the best intentions in mind, right? Like, we're, we're just going to go ahead and go past that. But then also, people tend to write, if you've ever written code personally or worked with anyone who has written code, it has bugs. It's going to have problems, right? And again, that's, that's germane to any kind of software development. But the point is, we put a lot of faith in code to be just like this impartial, almighty judge that can do all these things for us. And again, maybe there's certain aspects in certain places we can get to that. But for the most part, we do have to be careful that no matter what, at the end of the day, and again, I don't want to get wonky into generative AI, maybe that'll write the code and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, a human is writing that code. So thinking that we're getting away from biases whole cloth is, is first a misgiving. The second is by merit of something like Web3 being very tied to cryptocurrencies and most of Web3 and a lot of the projects being staked on creating value through, again, speculative assets, whether it's NFTs or what have you, you have this inherently financialized bend towards damn near everything you're doing there, right? And the issue becomes is it gets very difficult to try to determine 
Is someone building a Web3 project for the sake of an earnest belief, right, conviction around the need for decentralization or realistically to pump some bags and try to get some money out of it? And unfortunately, the space is ripe with scams. I think even the most bullish folks on Web3 will acknowledge that there's a lot of problems in that landscape. And then even if you aren't in that camp of scammers, what then becomes is that you think about, oh, I can just attach a token to everything. I can gamify everything. And gamification in and of itself is something where we push it too far and actually has a lot of negative ramifications that, oh, well, of course someone will do this if I give them this. Oh, of course someone will do this if I give them this. And this gets in this very behaviorist psychology, which was debunked decades ago, and starts to get away from the point that like maybe someone will play a game because it's fun. Maybe someone will go wants to go into experience because they're getting something out of it that doesn't necessarily have to have a monetary you know slant to it. So the minute that you start to believe and get this very transactional state of mind that any given action absolutely has to have some sort of extrinsic reward, an item, an NFT, money, something like that, you're going to stop making experiences people want to do for the sake of doing them. And again, to be clear, I don't think that there's these need to always be divorced, right? Like, I think there is a lot of value in the potential of like rewarding players and what have you. But if we get too focused on just the extrinsic rewards and stop thinking about, again, the joy that we get out of playing games, the validation that we get, all of the needs that it fulfills as it stands now, you're just going to make lousy experiences. And I think we're kind of caught in this loop with a lot of things going on in Web3 that we're so concentrated on extrinsic rewards and devaluing intrinsic rewards. Again, not the least of which, because again, we're kind of stepping away from humanistic thinking. It's just going to make a lot of not good stuff for a very long time until we break out of that mold. Powerful. Thank you. So let's bring this into a little bit of the trust and safety, people safety, and, and brand safety space. Um, at Oasis, you know, we're committed to building a better, more sustainable online communities based on standards of safety, privacy, and inclusion. We include the role of brands in these environments by facilitating knowledge and sharing between user safety and brand safety experts. Now, you happen to occupy what, what I think is a fairly unique position, which is having a well-researched understanding and ability to powerfully articulate the connectivity between people and brand safety. So can you share with us what you think the opportunity is for the industry to uncover and articulate best practices for user and brand safety, given the context that you just gave us. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm roughly paraphrasing probably half a dozen people that in business and, and candidly in so many of things, your superpower also tends to be your weakness, right? And if we think about what the superpower of something like gaming is, or realistically, we can kind of make this generalize any kind of immersive environment, it's just that. Like, it draws people in. It takes up 100% of their attention. It really becomes kind of all-encompassing, hopefully, in a positive way for folks. So what that means is there's a lot of opportunity in terms of the depth at which you can engage with someone, but also that means that the surface area is then open that the engagement could potentially be negative in that much more of an in-depth way. So I think as we think about immersive experiences, whether it's the metaverse or even just gaming more generally, you know, my, you know, standard that I kind of put out there is that we need to have a very high bar for this because there is already documented cases of harassment in metaverse type worlds. And again, we're still in the very early infancy, you know, embryonic type stages of this that, in theory, can only potentially get worse as a function of more users, as a function of better top technology, which makes more immersive environments and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, I've been very kind of bullish on 
working with, speaking with, and making sure that we have things like brand safety or realistically just person safety in general within digital environments top of mind because they're, you know, not to go so far as to sound like an alarmist, but to credibly put out there that there's a real potential threat there. In the Web3 world, you know, again, I think we already touched on it that in speaking with brands as it exists now, like it's difficult to do things even from a compliance issue because, again, everything's so inherently financialized. If you're trying to get the fact that you want to, I don't know, issue some neat digital collectible from your brand to consumers and trying to get that past legal, and they're like, hey, this is an unregulated financial instrument, they're going to shut it down. So, like, there's already a lot of complexities there, not the least of which from the potentiality of risk from, again, scams and what have you, which are very, you know, unfortunately quite common in Web3, but just even that everything that you're putting out there almost by default becomes financialized makes it very difficult for brands to engage in a safe way that again is would be compliant not just with their brand and their standards but also potentially the laws of whatever nation that they're they're working with them. what what do brands need to understand about uh, user and people safety in, in games right now what what are you seeing as sort of the, the leading edge of where game developers, publishers, these immersive environments are making great strides in sort of enhancing that positive interaction, you know, really helping people to get that human satisfaction out of playing a game, not just by themselves, but now, you know, in an interactive way with other people. So I think there's, there's, Two different bars that we look at. And the first one, I think, is where most brands at. And I think it's the most common one and candidly the easiest one to get around, which is brand suitability rather than brand safety, right? So when brands look at the gaming environment, there are a lot of experiences that they would say, hey, that's not for me, right? Like photo, realistic depictions of war or what have you, like that doesn't fit with my brand and what have you. And again, that's okay. So there are environments like that that might be applicable for other brands, but for every photorealistic war type environment or other kind of, you know, more action oriented game that might not fit with the brand, there are dozens of others which have a much more brand safe type of, you know, environment. Even going, again, my favorite example from Obvious Spice is something like Candy Crush, where, again, it's all chocolate rivers and rainbows and unicorns and things like that. Like it realistically doesn't get much more brand safe than that, right? So the first is kind of, you know, making sure that it's clear that as it pertains to opportunities in the gaming ecosystem, it's not monolithic. There are literally hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of different games, major IP that you can plug into. And realistically, there's going to be a good fit and a good player base relative to match with your consumer almost anywhere within that gaming environment. The second one then comes to what we literally think about brand safety, right? So adjacency to bad content, which I think gets back to um, some of the suitability issues, things like fraud and and what have you. There too, we've made big measures in terms of making sure that we have all the requisite ad tracking and what have you that brands would expect. Because again, we put ourselves to a fairly high bar in terms of how to make sure that brand safety is in place. And then you can start to get to that area of, you know, where, where I think there's a lot of crux for, for brand safety concerns, which is UGC, which, you know, depending on your definition of the, you know, gaming ecosystem can include the Twitches of the world, which obviously that is almost entirely UGC by default and all of the same concerns or protections that you might want to put from YouTube or what have you certainly apply there to even just generalized chat and games. And again, what we try to do is make sure that there is a pretty big distinction and we're very cognizant of where brands can potentially appear within or adjacent to UGC 
And the closer it gets, make sure that there it's known that there are protections in place. Because, you know, again, like any online environment, there's always going to be people that aren't acting in a way that we might like to. But for the most part, and again, you know, without getting into an exhaustive list, what I will say is that game publishers have been highly incentivized to try to stamp these things out, whether it's vulgar language or otherwise, because candidly, it makes a bad experience for the player. So at the end of the day, what I point to is that, you know, yes, brands are going to look at gaming and have a high bar and they should. However, when I work with brands, the other group that I need to make sure that I'm kind of appeasing and making sure that they're comfortable with marketing experience is the studios. And both of these are incentivized to have an extremely nice experience for the people we are trying to reach from different intentions, which is the player. So there's almost like this kind of double-barreled accountability that goes into it, which, again, I think is entirely appropriate and I think potentially necessary that game developers don't want bad stuff, bad messages, bad people in their games, whereas advertisers don't want to have their messages against a bad experience. So if anything, I think have done well and in working with, you know, publishers or what have you that are, you know, very inclined to keep the premiumness of their game intact it actually helps a lot with some of these potential concerns and then just becomes more of an issue of education thereafter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for partnership around how we show up in these spaces and um, continue to encourage um, good experiences for everybody there. So thank you for that. Um, so, you know, we are looking at, um, the new future of online communities, the metaverse, Web3 technologies, we're looking at all of this stuff. We we tend to see a lot of uh, negativity in the news. There is a lot of work to be done in terms of combating toxicity and misinformation and, and really critically important stuff that, um, that we're all grappling with in the ecosystem. But you just ended on a, a fairly positive note there. So I was hoping we could expand upon that. And when you think about, you know, all the work that we have to do and, and what the potential is, what gives you the greatest sense of hope about our future as a, a media ecosystem? If nothing else, I think that, you know, the more that the media ecosystem in general can start to think through not just what are different ways that we can interact and find consumers, but inherently positive ways, the better. Now, I think the the part that we're going to challenge or be challenged with, and again, I've been, as yourself, been working in the generalized media, marketing, advertising world for many, many years, is that change doesn't always happen really quickly. And we do love to kind of keep our standards, our currencies, and what have you in place. And what I think will happen is that whether it's through the metaverse, whether it's just through increased adoption of gaming or something like that, the, the key point that I often make, and I think that it's kind of one of the central premises of, of, of the book I wrote, is that one way or another, being clear on the opportunity and the fact that more of our media consumption patterns are going towards immersive media is going to be one of the bigger shifts that's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. So. We have two options. We can kind of ignore that, put our heads in the sand and just continue to, you know, think about, you know, standard linear media metrics and what have you and keep buying those in the same way that we have been since roughly 1960 or 1970. Or we can start to acknowledge what parts of how we evaluate media, how we evaluate consumers, how we form our messaging, how we think about the right way to interact with consumers needs to change. And again, my I do have a belief that, again, as someone who has, again, played games his entire life still does to this day, you know, I am not one of those people that wants to have bad marketing experiences in games. And I will go so far as to say some experiences shouldn't have ads in them, period. 
But others, I think it's okay. And others that I think there's a real path there that it could ideally either provide value to the player or potentially increase immersion if we think about, you know, integrating ads in a way that's kind of smart and makes it feel more like the real world and what have you. So those are the types of things that get me excited that it's not only that we're potentially completely rethinking a lot of our playbook in terms of how we advertise, completely opening up a new set of consumer psychology that, you know, has been around for a while, but less, I think, familiar to marketers, again, as it pertains to immersive media, but then also that creativity in terms of, again, we can't just think about a 30 or 60 second slot. We have to be a little bit more clever than that. And like, we're starting to see that, right? Like the billboards, skins, like kind of these early like integrations that are kind of molding into the game world. I think those types of things are just the start. I'm not creative enough to um, guess at which direction they're going to go. But like, as we have some of our best creative minds start to think through, like, what's a really effective way to speak with folks that's naturalistically, that's naturalistic, excuse me, to this environment and fits with it. Like, that's when I think we're really going to find, forgive the pun, like next level type stuff that can really be interesting for consumers. And I think really potentially powerful and potent for marketers. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I feel like we could go on forever. We'll have to have you back. Um, we're excited uh, for your support of Oasis and helping us think about the next iteration of the user safety standards. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work, good work being done. And um, hopefully we can continue the conversation uh, in these in these various spaces. Thank you again, Jonathan. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. For more information on how you can help build ethical and positive online experiences for both users and brands, download the Oasis User Safety Standards on our website at www.oasisconsortium.com.